Today we have increment 213 of Hebrews 2020, We See Jesus, which is not only the title, but my prayer that we will see Jesus as the word is communicated with clarity, with power, and with accuracy, precision. And that can only be done if the spirit of truth is involved. And so, Father, we do appeal to you today, as always, in our need that you will make clear the presentation of your word for it will be the presentation of Christ Jesus our hope and may this hope not be held under a bushel but may it become a light that lightens the whole house of this and coming generations we ask that in the name of Christ Jesus our hope amen Seems like I've been doing this too often lately, but another of Tetelestai Phalanx has crossed the finish line, having truly finished the course, fought the good fight, and maintained the faith, kept the faith right up to the last. And that is our very own Jerry Calcagni, who for many, many years attended our assembly wherever we were located and is characterized by the kind of faithfulness that's certainly rewarded by our Lord Jesus Christ. Jerry was a quiet, receptive presence in our midst. He was a man who gladly humbled himself in the sight of God, allowed God to lift him up and see the kind of horizon that we're all beginning to see a horizon of a universally saving God. Jerry was faithful right up into the end and suffered the loss of a son even very recently. He was treasured by Pam and I both and by many in this assembly. I got to speak with him twice in the past several months and he was cheerful, he was upbeat, even though he was enduring quite a lot. And he dearly loved all of you from this assembly. He truly loved the Lord. And again, he's among the many who are graduating into a permanent alteration of somatic status the pass, as I call it, into the presence of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So, we'll see you at the pass, meet you at the pass, Jerry, at the permanent alteration of our somatic status, where we will be glad to hear, and I will be exceptionally glad to hear, the Lord say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Jerry had almost reached his 94th birthday and certainly never wasted a moment in this life. And so, once again, grateful that we knew him. Today we're going to entertain the subject of the kind of priest we need, the kind of archpriest 
we need. And this is part three. And we'll also be going into part four. That's as far as I've prepared so far. We'll be going into a part four on the same subject. The kind of archpriest we need. You've heard Jesus as the single inclusive representative. You've used this acronym for him. Sir, single inclusive representative. And this way of speaking of Jesus our Lord first dawned on me in December of 2012, if my dates are correct in the books I was reading back then, reading C.H. Dodd on the Gospel of John. Dodd used the term inclusive representative for Christ, the King of Israel, the new humanity. In the context of the fourth gospel, Dodd, that's D-O-D-D, wrote this, quote, For John, of course, Israel is not the Jewish nation, but the new humanity reborn in Christ, the, com- the community of those who are of the truth and of whom Christ is king. In a deeper sense, Dodd writes, he is not only their king, He is their inclusive representative. They are in him and he in them. And I think it's one of those terms, inclusive representative. I might have even heard him say that before that in some of his sermons that were recorded. But inclusive representative was a grabber for me. And I simply added the word single inclusive representative. I did similarly when I read Wolfgang Wolfgang Pannenberg and Moltmann and others on Jesus Christ in his universal significance and elsewhere reading about his saving significance. And so with all the brilliance I could muster, I put those two together and said universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. And so those two terms have a lot of weight They carry a lot of weight. The insight of Jesus as Sir, S-I-R, is a very fruitful insight. Single, inclusive representative. It works on many levels, not least on the level of our time, what we call atlat, on the level of today, or on the level of our time. I like the way Emery said it this morning, on the level of today. Because Jesus Christ, after all, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This term, sir, applies to Jesus as the Son of Man. It's relevant to Jesus as the last Adam, or the second man, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, 50, 41, that is, to 49, we have that. Adam Christology, really from 22 all the way to the rest of the chapter. The second man, or the second inclusive representative man, that's Jesus. The first single inclusive representative being Adam. So the term sir applies to the man Christ Jesus as the one and only mediator between the one true God and all of humanity. It has to be all of humanity because there's only one true universal God and he's not the universe. 
He's God, the triune God. Moreover, as the mediator between the one true God and all of humanity in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, this one and only mediator between God and mankind not only represents mankind, all of us, to God, but also represents God to mankind. If we see Jesus, we see the Father. Moreover, the man Christ Jesus, as he's called, gave himself as a ransom for all. Ransom is antilutron, A-N-T-I-L-U-T-R-O-N. Antilutron. He gave himself as a ransom, antilutron, in exchange for all mankind, 1 Timothy 2.6. And it also says that the testimony of this truth is valid for all times. That's one way of translating 1 Timothy 2.6b. Valid for all times. It is therefore valid on the level of our time. Its own times in the Greek, you'll see these things in print, kairois, idios, in the plural, its own times, means, among other things, that the truth of Jesus offering himself as a ransom for all is always pertinent. And it's a always pertinent and potent testimony of God for all the times of history including our own time and not least our own time, of this ever-present reality, with a capital R, Bart wrote the following, because as crucified and dead, he is risen and lives. The fact of his death on the cross can never be passed. Notice that. The fact of his death on the cross can never be passed. It can never cease to be his action, the decision which God makes, hic et nunc, which is Latin for here and now, to his own glory and in our favor, summoning us on our part to responsibility, as is brought out so impressively and in a way to stir the conscience in Hebrews 10, 19, to 29. Sometimes the best commentaries on Hebrews are not found in commentaries on Hebrews, but in places like church dogmatics. I've heard the still small voice of the Holy Spirit on a few notable occasions in my career as a pastor and in my study. And on one of those occasions, I heard, You Need Church Dogmatics by Karl Barth. And so, for me, it's time to study that in earnest, and I've been getting extraordinary wealth from doing so. I don't say that applies to all, of course, but it's for me now, for sure. <clears throat> now, it's toward this stirring exhortation, beginning with Hebrews 10, 19, that we're headed even now, we're headed toward that stirring exhortation. But there's much more exposition to deal with first, and that's why we're 
still hovering over Hebrews 7.26 and will be teaching expositionally up through 10.18. <clears throat> now, in his death on the cross, the fact of which can never be passed, but always the present reality called Jesus Christ and him crucified. In his death on the cross, the fact of which can never be passed, but always the present reality called Jesus Christ and him crucified, <laughs> we have a reality on the level of our own time. <clears throat> Excuse me. In his resurrection and exaltation, which is an ever-present reality, capital R, Jesus is <clears throat> the single inclusive representative for all of humanity. Pro nobis omnibus. For all of humanity, and that's important. <clears throat> for all human beings. On the cross, he was the judge who was judged in our place. His singularly significant death for sins achieved justification for all human beings because Jesus himself was justified for all and as all. First of all, though, God was justified. Where do we hear of God being justified? Well, we hear it in the mouth of the opponent of Paul, but it's nevertheless a truth in Romans 3, 4. God, who is true, you will be justified in all your sayings. Romans 3, 4. And that's a quotation from Psalm 51, 4, which is the Septuagint of Psalm 50 and verse 6, I believe. God was justified in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God's Faithfulness was demonstrated in Jesus' death for us and for our sins. God was justified in all his words. That which was future in Psalm 51 when David spoke it, you will be justified in the day when you are judged. When you are judged, speaking of God being judged, that's right. When you are judged, you will be justified in all your sayings, all your words, all your promises, all your judgments, all your verdicts. That which was future to David is past in the cross, but also a present reality. God is justified. He was justified in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God's faithfulness was demonstrated in Jesus' death for us and for our sins. God was justified in all his words and promises and judgments in Romans 3, 4 in the death and resurrection of his son. This is at least in part what the scripture means when it says that by the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as most translations write it, and that guarantees to keep it obscure, as most translations do. It means that God's righteous, universally salvific action and God's righteous, saving 
judgment was apocalyptically revealed as his faithfulness in resurrecting Jesus from the dead and in doing so justifying Jesus on the basis of Jesus' own faithfulness. As God was justified, so Jesus was justified. God in the flesh was justified. 1 Timothy 3.16 says it explicitly. Jesus' own faithful obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, the death of the cross, was the basis of Jesus' own justification. So before we speak of the justification of sinful human beings, we must consider the justification of God. And instead of considering the faith or the faithfulness of sinful human beings, we must consider the faithfulness of God first of God the Father, and then of the faithfulness of his Son, of the man Christ Jesus. It is the Son's faithful obedience to the Father's universally saving will and intention that resulted in his own justification. I'll say that again. It is the son's faithful obedience to the father's universally saving intention that resulted in his own justification. And because he was and is our single inclusive representative, our sir, in our own justification in him. The justification of all sinful men and women. The Bible talks of God being justified in his works and victorious when he is judged. Again, that's Romans 3, 4, conferring with or referring to Psalm 51, 4, or Septuagint, Psalm 50, in verse 6. God was judged when God was in Christ, when his son was judged in our place. God the Father was vindicated, therefore, and justified when he was judged because in the justification of Jesus, on the basis of Jesus' own faithful obedience in Romans 3.26, all of humanity was justified in Romans 5.18. Romans 3.26 should be translated to reflect this reality, not to obscure it as most translations do. That's why when we went through reading Romans with the light on, I translated it this way. God is perfectly just, and the justifier of that one, O-N-E, capital O-N-E, by means of his own faithfulness, namely the faithfulness of Jesus. In the Greek, Jesus is in the emphatic last place of that verse. And therefore, it is speaking there of not justification of one who has faith in Jesus, but God's justification of the one whose faithful obedience resulted in the justification of all humankind. Romans has to be redone in our time. Moreover, God, who is demonstrated to be just and righteous, as He's called rightly in 1 John 1, 9 and Deuteronomy 32, 4. God who is demonstrated to be just and righteous 
in justifying Jesus. By justifying Jesus, he justified all of condemned humanity in Jesus, their sir, the sir of all humanity, the single inclusive representative. Now this is going to become very important because we're moving into another name for Jesus which has to do with his single inclusive antitype that's coming up in future messages. Single inclusive antitype or archetype, we'll see how that works out. All who were once situated, now I want you to notice two words now from the rest of this message. The human situation, that word situation, and the human condition, condition, situation, and condition. Those are the two catchwords for the rest of this message. All who were once situated in the first single inclusive representative man, Adam, and who were in him, were condemned in him. But they are now situated that is, all who were once situated in the first sir are now situated in the second and final single inclusive representative of humankind. And they are justified in him. This is a present reality, a reality present in our own time. God has radically altered the human situation. Only faith appropriates this. This is not something you get by walking by sight, but walking by faith. Faith appropriates the totality of God's love. And faith appropriates the fact that the human situation in its totality has been radically altered, though it cannot be seen. Well, faith is the conviction of things not seen. The human condition has not yet been radically altered. If you don't believe that, watch the news for 10 minutes today. Massacres, mass rapes in Ukraine. A mass murder in Sacramento. Violence across our nation has nothing to do with guns, but with the condition of man who holds the gun. The condition of man has not been altered, except in cases of regeneration and in cases of people filled with the Holy Spirit who are experiencing the coming age in the present in some measure, not in a sinless measure by a long shot, but in some small measure. All who were once situated in the first single inclusive representative man, Adam, and in him who were condemned, are now situated in the second and final single inclusive representative of humankind, and therefore they are justified, not condemned, in him. That is the human situation now, right now, because God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Therefore, God is found to be just and the justifier of Jesus because of Jesus' faithful obedience unto the death of the cross, which isn't any old death. 
it is pathetic how on Good Friday every year, preachers refer to the sufferings of Jesus, but never to the atoning sufferings of Jesus and what he experienced under the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A death that no one except the Son of God experienced. No one except the Son of God and the Father who experienced that death and the Spirit who experienced that death. For in that death, God was being judged. The Son was being judged. The man, Christ Jesus, was being judged in our place. And the Holy Spirit experienced the great grief of that death. You miss that, you miss the gospel, really. Now, it's true, of course, all the other sufferings, the physical endurance, the psychological, the emotional, the horrible abuse that Jesus endured. All of that is historical fact and reality, that he was placed in a tomb in a death-confirming burial is also true. That he was raised from the dead is also true. But his death for sins was something, well, unspeakable and indescribable, but something that we must relate to even now. Now... God is found to be just, therefore, as Romans 3.26 puts it, and at the same time the justifier of Jesus, because Jesus' faithful obedience unto the death of the cross, Philippians 2.8, and therefore in justifying Jesus, God is just in justifying all of sinful humanity who were judged in Jesus and in his death, and therefore and thereby justified with him and raised with him the justified sir, as I are. What must be recognized, and it's true whether it's recognized or not, listen carefully to this, what must be recognized, and it's true whether it's recognized or not, is that the whole human situation has been radically altered in Christ and in the Christ event. That event which includes his incarnation, his life of obedience in the days of his flesh that culminated in his passion and death, his death confirming burial, his resurrection from the dead, his exaltation to the right side of God, the majesty, above the heavens, not just in the heavens, above the heavens. We have to walk by faith and not by sight with regard to this reality of the alteration of the human situation because the human condition, which is actually observable, has not changed. But the whole human situation has changed. That's the gospel. Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. If God was in Christ on the cross reconciling the world to himself, then the world has been reconciled to God. That's what I would call the complete alteration of the human situation. 
But as it says earlier on in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith and not by sight, as if preparing us for this fact. The human situation has been altered, but you don't get that by walking by sight. You get it and understand it by walking by faith. By faith we understand, Hebrews 11.3. Now this is, I'm going to try to make this more clear because good teaching always proceeds from relative obscurity to hopefully clarity, and I'm hoping to do that now. The human condition has not changed, but the whole human situation has changed because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and because he who knew no sin was made to be sin so that the whole of humanity to whom God did not impute their sins would be made the righteousness of God in him. In this, sir. This is the power of the gospel on the level of our time. Gospel at lot. Jesus Christ and him crucified <clears throat> is as powerful a reality now as it was in the moment of his crucifixion, his death, his death-confirming burial, and his resurrection from the dead. I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I hope that's pretty much the last thing I can say as a pastor in Tetelestai Phalanx. But it's what Paul said to the saints at Corinth. There in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, crucified, Esther Omenon, the perfect passive participial form of the verb starao, means, as Robertson put it, A.T. Robertson put it, literally, and this one as crucified. Jesus Christ and this one as crucified. Jesus is always the crucified. He's not always on the cross and fixed to the crucifix per se, but he's always the crucified. And he's always the crucified who was resurrected from the dead and radically altered in that resurrection. Jesus right now is the crucified. Right now he is the crucified who was raised and exalted and who is right now and forever at the right hand of the just and justified God as our advocate, our intercessor, as the only mediator between the one God and all of humanity. Listen to this, which has the makings of a thesis. Jesus Christ, the crucified, is the sole reason for the radical alteration of the human situation. Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised from the dead and glorified, is the sole reason for the radical alteration of the human condition which is about to happen. He is the sole reason for the alteration of the human condition which is about to happen when all of humanity is changed and clothed with immortality and incorruption according to a mystery. Faith lays hold of the fact that presently 
the alteration of the human situation has occurred, both past and present. Hope or faith, which is things hope, which is the conviction of things hoped for, the assurance of things hoped for, lays hold of the future reality that the human condition, including bodily condition, is going to change according to a mystery. Paul said, let me, in, let, me let you in on a secret, on a mystery in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. It was disclosed to us through the same apostle who wrote the words in 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. The bottom line of this now revealed mystery was, has yet to become an observable and universally experiential reality. It is yet to become that and it will inevitably, inevitably become that. We will all be changed. This does not refer to a future change of the human situation. That's already happened in Christ's death and resurrection. This refers to a permanent change of the human condition by bodily resurrection, the general bodily resurrection. Even though the situation of the whole human of humanity has been radically altered from enmity to peace with God, Man in his present condition, flesh and blood, cannot inherit or come into the full possession and experience of the kingdom of God. Now, are you going to listen to this message and say, oh, yeah, I heard that message? Or are you going to pay attention to the things I'm saying and follow them out and prayerfully consider them and prayerfully ask for insights regarding them from God? Because if you don't know, if we don't know, that the human situation has been radically altered in Christ and him crucified, we don't have the gospel and are not qualified to communicate hope to the world, a hopeless world. God remedied the problem that we cannot inherit the kingdom of God in our pleasant, present form of flesh and blood, he remedied that in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in which Jesus, as our single inclusive representative, became a life-giving spirit. The Bible can say to us without equivocation, therefore, you were raised together with Christ. Because in those instances when the Bible does say that, like in Romans 6.11, Ephesians 2.5 and 6, Colossians 2.12 and 3.1 and other places, the word is speaking of the alteration of our situation. Now in 2 Timothy 2.17 and 18 condemns that which is called the cancerous talk. I can think of two morning shows that I was forced to watch in doctor's offices which on the TVs and doctor's offices, and they wouldn't let you have access to the remotes. You had there sit there and listen to the talk or the viewpoint of certain people. And it really all comes down to mostly cancerous talk, like that of Hymenaeus and Philetus. And so it's hard to block those things out, but there's a lot of that stuff going around right now in this evil age. The word is speaking in those passages of the alteration of the human situation. Again, 
When Hymenaeus and Philetus spoke in what Paul called cancerous talk, they had deviated from the truth because they were saying that the resurrection has already taken place. Well, isn't that what Paul said when he said you've already been raised together with Christ? No. They were saying that it was the human condition, the change of the human condition and bodily resurrection had already taken place, where Paul was saying the change in the human situation had taken place, but not yet the change of the human condition, which happens in the second appearance of Jesus Christ when he comes with salvation and when he comes to what? Change the present status of our bodies of humiliation into bodies like his own bodies of glory in Philippians 3.20. So, when the Bible condemns the cancerous talk of Hymenaeus and Philetus in 2 Timothy 2.17 and 18, it's because they were saying that the change of the human condition has already happened when, in fact, and obviously, it still hasn't even today. So here's another makings of maybe almost a thesis. Beyond the debate of universal salvation or not, is the incontrovertible truth that in Jesus Christ and him crucified, resurrected and exalted to the right side of the eternal majesty on high, God has radically universally and permanently altered the human situation for the infinite better, for the infinitely better. It's already happened. Human situation, you say, nobody knows this. Hardly anybody knows this. Hardly anybody acknowledges this, right? Whether they acknowledge it or know it or not, or believe it or not, God has changed the human situation. He's reconciled the world to himself. Someone would say, do you actually believe that? I, Hell yes, I do. God has done this as the action of his unconditional, unrestricted, radical love. His uncontingent and holy, free grace. And his great and universally saving mercy. Now, I, I challenge you, everyone who's hearing this message, you go into the Bible and you consult the scriptures and you pray to God, the Holy Spirit gives you insight as to whether or not this is true. Has God altered the human situation in its totality through the crucified Christ? And ask yourself again, does the Bible say that he is going to radically alter the human condition universally by a bodily resurrection of all the dead? Is he or not? I've come to the conclusion, yes, he has, and yes, he will. So that's my conviction, and as Luther said, here I stand. It's not a statement of bravado. It's just a statement of fact. Now, we wait with a groaning and with a growing and not, hopefully, waning intensity of anticipation for our deliverer from heaven, who will come and change the bodies of our present miserable state into bodies of glory. Now, this you say, you're not in a miserable state. That's because you may be well. 
you may be taking balance of nature and you feel really good and you you're in your 50s but you feel like you're in your 20s but let me tell you something your state is miserable compared to the bodily state that we're going to have in bodies of glory if you your body's all greased up and bronzed up and you're on a stage because you've lifted weights and taken steroids and pumped yourself up so that you look like an abnormal being and you've won a weightlifting contest and you're prancing around with a speedo on stage and you think that you're no longer in a miserable state that's a miserable state you're in right now you're in a bodily miserable state compared to the body of glory by the resurrection of the dead. Maybe that'll give you some perspective. It might even shoot in a little dose of not steroids, but humility. Now, don't watch movies and see movie stars and aspire to the kinds of bodies that can only be gotten by the help of chemical inducements. Forget all that stuff. I have much more to say on that, having studied a lot of muscle stuff and muscle magazines and all the rest of that. I almost have a BS degree in it, but that's for another time. The state of our present situation, bodily speaking, is relatively, compared to the state of the glorious bodies, it's a miserable state. It's a, it's humi it's a humiliation. And... We wait, because when he comes, he's going to give us a body like his own glorious body. When he comes, when Christ, our great archpriest, appears a second time without having to deal with sin, which he dealt with finally and completely in his first appearance as archpriest and as the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, when he comes, it will be to radically alter the human condition and the condition of the groaning creation, from one of slavery to corruption and entropy to one of glorious and cosmic liberation, which was God's first intention anyways. Until then, we walk by faith. We walk by faith. We walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 And that's the faith that is the substance and the assurance of this hoped-for reality knowing that already the human situation, our situation, has been radically altered by the action of our great archpriest and by his passion as God's lamb. Now, our situation has been radically altered. Some people are actually experiencing that because we are not disappointed in our hope of the change of the human condition because in the meantime, God has poured out the love of God in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so we have something in faith to kind of tide us over, hold us over until our hope is realized. The love of God poured out in our hearts. Romans 5.5. 5. So as we wait for the ultimate change of the human condition, we rejoice in the change of the human situation, and we also rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and we also rejoice because we have within us the Holy Spirit, the fruit of whom is joy. Now, until then, 
until that cosmic liberation, which is really the culmination of creation, we walk by faith, and that faith is the substance and insurance of this hoped-for reality. Knowing that already the human situation, our situation, has been radically altered by the action of our great archpriest and by his passion as God's lamb. When he comes at the great pass, permanent alteration of our somatic or bodily status, at the West, when you watched old-fashioned westerns, you'd hear oftentimes the statement, we'll meet you at the pass, the pass between two rocks and a canyon, and you'll meet you at the pass. And I call the pass the permanent alteration of somatic status or status. And when our great archpriest makes his second appearance, the pass will come to pass for all men and women and children who have ever lived in the permanent alteration of our somatic status. So to Jerry Calcagni and to the many dear others who have departed from this veil of tears, even during our present separation, into the embrace of our sir, I say this, we'll meet you at the pass. Now in conclusion of this message, and the concluding part in one sense is more important than all the others, is practically speaking. Faith is both the conviction that the human situation has been altered to the ultimate good in and by the Christ event, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Faith is also the assurance that the human condition will be altered to the ultimate good in the parousia of Christ, the second appearance of our great archpriest. And this is at least in part what Hebrews 11.1 1 says when it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Not seen. What is something not seen? I'll tell you what's not seen. The alteration of the situation of the human race in Christ, which occurred in the Christ event. That's not seen, but faith appropriates and lays hold of that reality and acknowledges that reality. That alters your whole life and your whole inner being, that faith. It's not seen, but faith lays hold of the fact that the human situation has been radically altered. You look at people totally different that way, differently that way. The love of Christ controls you toward other people, all people. Not seen, then, is the alteration of the situation of the human race. What we don't see also is the change of the human condition. We see it previewed in Jesus Christ in his resurrection as he's portrayed in the scriptures to us. Faith is therefore the conviction of the unseen reality that the human situation has been radically altered. Also, according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, we don't hope for the change of the situation of humanity. That's already occurred in Christ and him crucified. We hope for the change of the human condition. What is hoped for is the radical alteration of the human condition, which will occur when Jesus returns from heaven 
and by the power that is able to subject all things to him, all human beings will be changed by putting on immortality and incorruption, qualities of a new body. The characteristics of bodies of glory that are like the body of our great God and Savior and our great archpriest, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, whom the God of peace brought up from the realm and reign of death because of the blood of Jesus, the blood that ratified the new, the better, the everlasting covenant. Now faith is intimately linked, therefore, to Jesus Christ as the single inclusive representative of all humanity, the sir of all humanity. What we believe ought not to be kept under a bushel basket. What we believe ought to be what we communicate. And we communicate it maybe not in spoken words, but in love. What constitutes our hope is what we should pass on to generations to come. We must not shroud this hope under the wraps of sacred robes or hide it in the houses of worship that we call churches. The light of this faith and of this hope must not be kept under the bushel basket of an esoteric theology. It has to break out and enlighten our children and their children and grandchildren. And this is my prayer, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.